All right, we come now to Hebrews chapter 8 and to this amazing text we began last Sunday as we really ventured into this 8th chapter. We mentioned last Sunday how important a chapter this is, not only in the argument of Hebrews, but in our own Baptist tradition and faith, as the 8th chapter is an important part in establishing our covenant theology, and we'll come to that starting in a couple of Sundays. But today we want to finish the introduction to this chapter by recognizing what it says, because our author immediately begins by saying this is the kafaleon, the head point, the chief thing that must be said. Well, what is that chief thing? He says, we have such a high priest. Not just we have a high priest, we have this kind of excellent high priest. Now, he begins there to make some differentiations that are important to us, that are really the summation of all that he's been arguing through all these chapters, which is this, he is unlike that which came before. That which came before points to him. It's a shadow of the substance of Christ, but he is greater than all those things. And we could walk back through step by step, chapter, step by step, chapter by chapter, at all the things he's been arguing were pointing to him. So what is the chief point? Christ is the great mediator. He is the great leader, the great intercessor. He is the great one that all those others were pointing to. They were shadows pointing to his substance. They were types pointing to his antitype. They were pointing to their own fulfillment in him. We've been looking at that for seven chapters. That is what Hebrews is all about. So when we say that we have such a high priest, what were we arguing? Well, he's in one sense like Levi. Levi foreshadows him, but he is in many ways unlike Levi. What were the things that we looked at in the first two verses last week? Well, he's seated. He's seated. In the holy place he is seated. What Levitical priest could sit down in the presence of God? None. No Levitical priesthood. Why? Because their work was never finished. That's a key theme we've been seeing over and over again. It reemerges here. He's saying as a summation, the chief point is, we have a high priest whose work is complete in terms of his oblation. And he's seated not just in the presence of God, but in the heavenly place. Look at what he says there. On the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, he is seated in a place of power enthroned, if you will, at the very right hand of God the Father. So that means he doesn't just simply uh, enter and abide permanently in a seated position, the presence of God, but he rules and reigns there as our Melchizedekian priest king. Again, a theme of Hebrews over and over again. But notice what it says. That makes him a minister unlike Levi. Because Levi ministered where? In the tabernacle. A tabernacle made by human hands, as instructed by God to do. But this priest ministers where? In the true tabernacle. The true. Now, we made this distinction last Sunday. It's important to start with this. It isn't saying true and the earthly is false. It's not saying that. It's saying the true as opposed to the earthly type. Right? The prefiguring, the, the model, the copy. We'll come back to that today. It's a chief point to the argument. So again, Christ has entered into the heavenly sanctuary, the heavenly holy of holies where he is seated. No earthly priest could do this. No Levitical priest could do this. Christ abides forever in the presence of God with his work being completed. And that is a privilege no son of Levi could ever enjoy. And it's of incredible importance because 
This is the true tabernacle. The earthly tabernacle is not without import, but its importance is in recognizing that it points to a greater tabernacle and a greater priesthood that our high priest has entered. And so again, all of that is what he began to deal with in those first two verses. Today we want to begin to look at 3 through 6 and see how they segue into this great argument that we're going to see in terms of covenantal theology moving forward. So he says this is the main point, the kephaleon that we're making, the chief point, the head point that we are making. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. Those are just glorious words, right? And they're going to be very important to us because the groundwork is already being laid that this covenant, this new covenant, is different from the old covenant. It is fundamentally different. It is a better covenant, a different covenant. And we'll come to that in the weeks ahead. But today, as we focus on verses 3 through 6, I want us to look at these two points. First of all, a priestly requirement and restriction a priestly requirement and restriction, and second of all, a glorious fulfillment and reality. Because I believe this is what the author wants us to take away as we get ready to enter into these important verses ahead in this eighth chapter. So beginning first uh, with this important point about a requirement and restriction for priesthood, this comes to us very quickly here. We saw uh, last Sunday that the chief point we're trying to get at is that we have such an amazing priest Such an amazing high priest. He is unlike any high priest who's come before. Uh, Melchizedek points to him. Levi points to him. He is the fulfillment of those images, but he is the one. He is the high priest. He is the one we've been waiting for. But we're reminded right here as we enter this text that the priest has a chief obligation, doesn't he? Well, what is it? Well, we can word it in many ways. We could say he intercedes on behalf of the people. He represents the people before God. All those things would be true, but his chief job is to offer sacrifices. And that's what our author says here. For every high priest is appointed to do what? To offer both gifts and sacrifices. Now, we know that's true. The job of the priest was to offer sacrifice day after day. The high priest had a particularly special function we've looked at throughout this text Of what? On Yom Kippur, entering the Holy of Holies, and after offering a sacrifice, then taking the blood into the Holy of Holies and sprinkling it on the Ark of the Covenant in the presence of God. That's a pretty important task. But again, we see again and again that the job of the priest, at least a primary point of his job, is to offer sacrifice. Well, what of our own high priest? Our author is saying he can't be without a sacrifice to offer. He must also, he must likewise have a sacrifice if he is to be called a high priest. For every high priest must offer gifts and sacrifices. So what has our high priest offered? He offered a perfect and availing sacrifice in him, his own body, in his own person. He offered himself the perfect Lamb of God as the appropriate and availing sacrifice. 
And our text reminds us that this is necessary. It is necessary that he had a sacrifice, but it isn't just another sacrifice. The Levitical priests never could sit because they offer sacrifice today, and on Yom Kippur next year there must also be another sacrifice. There is a singular sacrifice every year, but there is an ongoing, recurring pattern of the sacrifice. There is a plurality of the sacrifices because they are never sufficient. Never sufficient. Christ offered a perfect and sufficient, in fact we could just combine those, perfectly sufficient sacrifice. He offered it in Himself. That's what the first chapter says, that He purged our sins in His own body. In Himself. He did this in Himself. He offered Himself as the perfect sacrifice. And so He does that. And this reminds us of the necessity of it. So the priestly requirement is required in the work of Christ in both His person and work, because He is the spotless Lamb the Bible has pointed to. All of Scripture, the Passover Lamb in the Old Testament, pointed to Him. Paul says that. He is the spotless Lamb of God. He is the one uh, who would come and fulfill all that biblical theology. He is the one pictured there. But there's something else we need to remember, and this is a very important point theologically. And it's a point that's often missed, if you will. In fact, uh, John Owen Uh, in the death of death, you know, uh, in the death of Christ, he makes this point over and over again that the priest's job wasn't simply to sacrifice. You know, it's easy to just think this way, to make everything about the cross. The cross is glorious. The cross is essential. We don't want to miss that point. But a priest's work is not completed in simply slaughtering an animal. If the priest outside the Holy of Holies killed the animal but then left it there, the job is uncompleted, right? It is incomplete. The priest must then take the blood into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies and sprinkle it there on behalf of the people for his own sins first and then for the sins of all the people. And this text has reminded us of this. So again, if Christ simply dies upon the cross, but there is no sanctuary for him to enter, his work is incomplete. Why do we say that if he did not rise from the dead, then our our hope is in vain? It's foolishness. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ did not rise, then you are still in your sins. Why? Well, first of all, He isn't who He said He is, right, if He doesn't rise from the dead. But also, where is He ministering? What sanctuary has He entered? He's entered into death, but nothing more. And so again, the point here in biblical theology is there must be a place that He goes into the presence of God as our high priest, and that sacrifice is applied, if you will where he ministers on behalf of his people. And so again, uh, you could imagine our author here is almost thinking, where is the Holy of Holies that Christ entered? Where is the place that he entered in terms of his ministry? Where is this place? And you might say, well, we've got you here on this. Right? You're trapped. Because he cannot enter the earthly Holy of Holies. That's going to be the restriction that we see in the text. Look at what it says. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest. Why? Why could he not be a priest on earth? Well, our author has already told us. He's not a Levite. He would be violating the law if he entered the Holy of Holies. The Old Covenant makes this clear. And so you can almost imagine the author here seeing an argument against this point by saying, you don't really have a high priest because he can't enter into the Holy of Holies. He can't enter into the place that he must enter in for the sacrifice to avail. Where is he going to minister? Where is the the curtain that he has gone behind into the presence of God? Where is that located? 
And what we want to say is this strong argument you think you're making is not as strong as you think it is, right? Because he doesn't need to enter the Levitical Holy of Holies. He doesn't need to enter the earthly tabernacle into the inner tent behind the curtain. He doesn't need to do that because that Levitical tabernacle is not what you think it is. It is not the fullness. It is not the substance. It is a shadow. It is a copy. It is in the likeness of something greater than itself. And when you realize that, you realize that your point falls apart. So we need to come to the answer on that. There is a restriction. We don't want to deny that. Christ as a, as a priest could not enter the Holy of Holies and do His work. Not on earth. Because again, He is not a Levite. But He is not without a sanctuary in which to minister. In fact, He has access to the true sanctuary. And that is what the author of Hebrews wants us to realize. The priestly work of Christ is not the cross alone. But it's the place in which he ministers as our high priest functioning uh, as the minister on behalf of the people of God at the right hand of God. So what does our author say? He has gone through a curtain. He traveled behind not a physical curtain on earth, but into the heavens. This heavenly curtain, he has entered it into the place, into the abiding place of our heavenly father. And he stays there perfectly. Right? That's the beauty of this language. He doesn't have to come out after a short time. He doesn't have to do a quick work and then leave. He is perfectly welcome, perfectly at home, at the right hand of the Father. Being God, being holy, being perfectly righteous himself. And more than that, he has a place there because he is enthroned there. Enthroned there as the Messianic king-priest. The Melchizedekian king-priest. That goes back to chapter 1 and the importance of that language that after he had done this work in his own body, then he was seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Being given a greater name and being given a greater title and authority than all those earthly pictures can point to because ultimately they're pointing to him. And so again, as we look at this, we see that he enters into this heavenly place. And what's interesting about this is it says something here. Because in speaking of the earthly high priests, it says that they are appointed to offer, but, but where do they offer? They offer and serve the copy or shadow. Now that's language we've been using a lot lately, I know. But think about this for a minute, because this word that it uses is ubodegma. And it literally means a copy or a pattern. That's what our translations say, but it, it means that. It means a copy or a pattern. He says when the Mosaic priesthood, when the Levitical priesthood enters into the Holy of Holies, they enter into a picture of something greater. A copy. A pattern. Not the fullness. Not the reality, if you will. Not that it's false, but that it's merely a pattern. That it's merely a type pointing to something greater than itself. So in asking where Christ ministers after making a sacrifice, the answer, far from disqualifying Christ actually shows his importance, the necessity of Christ. Because here's the reality. While he couldn't enter the earthly tabernacle, the Holy of Holies in the earthly tabernacle, because he isn't a Levite, no Levite can enter the Holy of Holies in which he is entered as high priest. Only Christ could. And that does make him unique. And we would point to this interesting fact that he is not a Levite, but the promise of his priesthood wasn't given to the Levitical priesthood. Where do we find the promise of his priesthood? Psalm 110. Psalm we've looked at many times. And what does it say? David's descendant of the tribe of Judah shall be the one who is 
enthroned as a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. It is one of Judah, not of Levi, who will enter into this role. And so again, while he can't enter that earthly priesthood by the barring of the old covenant, guess what? No Levite could enter into his priesthood authorized in the new covenant. And so again, we need to see the importance of that. The Old Testament itself points to this fact. It points to the temporal and shadowy nature of the workings of the tabernacle. To make this point, let's turn to the text that our author is referring to. Turn back to Exodus chapter 25. In fact, as you're turning there, let's just go first to 24, because it's important to remember that that Moses is called upon the mountain. He's called up, and, and some, of course, go with him, but he's called a little further up. And it says that in verse 18 of chapter 24, So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And God has much to reveal and say to Moses. But what we want to see is in that 25th chapter, he gives instructions for the tabernacle. Every detail of how the tabernacle is to be built, constructed, how it is to be appointed is given to Moses. Moses is told these things. And if you think that uh, it isn't done in just that way, look at verse 9, early in the chapter. God says to Moses, according to all that I show you, that is, what are you showing him? The pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. In other words, I'm giving you the blueprint. I'm giving you the design. I'm giving you the likeness of something else that you are to make on earth to be just like it. Not as glorious as it, but glorious and like it. Although the lesser glory, we can point to many things the Bible thinks of in just this way, right? The new covenant itself is so glorious. The old covenant has a diminished glory next to it. It's of glory. It's glorious. But there's a glory that avails in the New Testament. And in the same way, there is a glory to the, to the Old Testament's Levitical tabernacle. But there is a much greater glory in this heavenly tabernacle after which it's molded. And so again... Look at what he says there. He says, uh, after that pattern, you shall make this. Now, to leave no room that somebody might say, well, that's an English translation. Uh, how do we know that's accurate? Well, first of all, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses a very similar word to the author of Hebrews in saying that it is a type, a pattern, a copy. But the original Hebrew word that's given to us in the Hebrew text is tabnit, which means copy, model, pattern, or reproduction. Reproduction, which is pretty interesting to think about that. That it's telling you even in Exodus, what you are building is a copy of something else. It's made in the likeness of something else, something greater than itself. And you are therefore to do exactly what you are commanded and to follow these instructions precisely. In fact, the text that our author finds so important is at the very end of this chapter, verse 40, he quotes this. The commandment of God. And see to it that you make them, all these things he's saying, see that you make all these things according to the pattern, same word, which was shown you on the mountain. In other words, what is there not room for here? Ingenuity. No license for creativity. Right? No, no felt needs that need to be incorporated into this. Right? This is simply God saying, here's what I'm giving you, do it. Do this exactly. Follow these instructions 
precisely. Leave nothing out, no detail unmet. Do it exactly like I tell you. Now that's important because Moses could say, eh, does it really need to be so large? Do we really need this inner tent? This is not for Moses to decide. This is for Moses to do. And God is telling him the urgency of it rests in what it is. It is not an end in itself. It is a shadow. It is a type. It is a pattern. It is, the Hebrew says, even a reproduction of something greater than itself. Well, what is that? Well, that is this heavenly tabernacle, this heavenly place of ministering that Christ is the high priest of, that he will enter and make intercession on behalf of his people. It's a picture in the tabernacle, isn't it? We could walk through in detail, and there are great resources on this, on each part of the tabernacle, each instrument of the tabernacle, and it's, it's picture forward, if you will, into something in the New Covenant. And that would be a good study sometime when we have a little bit more time. But in essence, if you think about what the tabernacle is, it's a place of ministering in which the priests offer sacrifices, but there's one special location for one special priest where he can enter into the presence of God. What is the emblem of the presence of God? And what that was to teach us is that this priestly work must be done in the presence of God. But it can't be perfectly done by a son of Levi. It can't be done by any mere man. It must be done by a man, one who is truly man, but also truly God. There is one appointed for this task, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the perfect priest. We've gone through all these details, but it is for Him and Him alone to do. And if the tabernacle leads you to any other conclusion than that, you've missed what it's trying to teach you. You've missed what it's trying to teach you. And what our author is saying is, did you consider this? From the very beginning of the tabernacle, God was telling you that the tabernacle was not sufficient. That it was not the end in itself from the very beginning. Just as when you reread the Bible, having read the New Testament, right? you reread the Old Testament, you realize that even in Genesis, God was saying, Levitical priesthood was not enough. It was not sufficient. It didn't avail. It pointed to something greater than itself, as the tabernacle points to something greater than itself. But they are not the end. And I think our author is saying, if you just picked up your Old Testament and read it more carefully, I wouldn't have to be telling you this. Right? It's there. It's clear. It's given to you by God Himself. In fact, it's given to you in every place by God. Because God is the one speaking to Moses saying, do this exactly as I've given you the pattern. And it is God who is saying that this messianic king-priest will be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And what our author is asking is, well, if the fullness is a tabernacle, why is there something more? If the Levitical priesthood is enough, why the need that the Messiah wouldn't just be a Levitical priest? Why not let him be a son of Levi instead of a son of Judah? Why must there be this other priesthood? And the answer is it predates the Levitical priesthood. It's greater than the Levitical priesthood. It is the priesthood that Christ will serve in. And so again, as we come to this, we realize that the Old Testament is giving us the answer. It's not that Christ is somehow barred from entering the Levitical Holy of Holies. Yes, He is. But He wouldn't avail anything if He was in there. 
What we always needed, what that Levitical temple and before it tabernacle was showing us, is we need a greater priest in a greater holy place. And that is only in the sanctuary of heaven, and that is only in the person of Christ coming in. In fact, everything else is merely a copy pointing to that. So while the Old Testament priesthood functioned in the partial, as a shadow, as a copy, as a type, our priest stands in the true place of substance. He stands there perfectly, availing forever, his ministry never ceasing. He ministers perfectly on behalf of us. Now, why does that matter? Why is that the main point, the head point of this letter? Well, it should be pretty self-evident, shouldn't it? Because what he's saying is, if that is the reality, then what are you going to find going back to Levi? What are you going to find going back to the temple? What are you going to find going backward when all of that was pointing forward? Why is this the main point of the letter? Because it's showing us the blessing of the Old Testament in revealing to us the mysteries of Christ before they're fully revealed in the New Covenant. The New Covenant certainly reveals these mysteries. But they were there in the Old Covenant. They were there shown to us, little bits here and there, little pieces here and there. But once we come to the New Covenant, the New Testament, we read these things, we go back and we say, now I understand why it says that was a type, a pattern, a copy. It was given to us for a purpose to show us our need of Christ. And so if we understand how weak the Levitical priesthood is, and if we didn't have that language in the Bible, we might feel almost weird saying that, but it was weak. Why? Because it's human beings. Fallen sinners ministering in the sanctuary of God, allowed in by God's grace under all those rules given in the Old Covenant, but it was imperfect because it was fallen men. But our high priest is not a fallen man. Our high priest is perfect and he's righteous. He is God himself and he enters into the holy place and the sanctuary in the presence of God and he abides there and ministers perfectly. So if you see the weakness of the Levitical priesthood, it shows you what? that there must be a greater priesthood, a perfect priesthood. If you recognize the shadowy nature of the tabernacle, then you understand the need of something greater than that shadowy tabernacle, the substance of what it points to, a true tabernacle in which one can minister in the presence of God perfectly and forevermore. And that's revealed to us here. So if we understand the perfect holiness of God, if we understand our own wretchedness before God, if we realize as sinners that we need to be reconciled to a holy and righteous God, there's only way, one way that can happen. It isn't in the Levitical priesthood or the Levitical ministerings. All those things pointed forward to the, where it would happen, and that's in the perfect work of Jesus Christ. He has accomplished it. And so that tells us something very important. If we are in need of reconcil- reconciliation to a holy and righteous God, this is good news for us. If we recognize our need of Christ then this text tells us that He has done the work. He has ministered on our behalf. If we hear the call, we need to answer it. But it also means that we have reason to rejoice if we have heard the call and answered it. If we are in Christ, we have reason to rejoice because this is a perfectly completed work. Nothing to be added to it. Nothing can be subtracted from it. Not really. Humans can try to do that by making another gospel that's no gospel at all. But this true work has been completed by Christ, completed perfectly. And so what's left to do is recognize your need of it and to trust in it, trust in Christ, to repent of your sins and turn to Him, trusting in Him. And my friends, if you have done that, you have reason to rejoice evermore because of what this text is telling you. 
All those Old Testament pictures were important. They're important at the time, historically and covenantally, but they pointed forward to something that we urgently needed, and that is God in flesh coming to minister on our behalf, offering the perfect sacrifice, which only He could because He Himself was the perfect sacrifice, and ministering in the heavenly places, the perfect sanctuary, perfectly availing on behalf of His people, that we might have reconciliation to our Father perfectly forevermore.